Hoffman is an internationally known leader and voice for women's rights. She is also a healthcare pioneer and founded Choices Women's Medical Center, one of the country's first abortion clinics in 1971, two years before the U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion nationally with Roe versus Wade. Now in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's overturned decision, I spoke with her about how we as women can become visible and use our collective voices and power to claim our absolute right to choose. I'm Merle Hoffman, and this is a lesson on the courage of choice. I'm going to start slightly differently here. I do want to know what your earliest memory of being creative is, and then what your earliest memory of activism is, or are they one and the same? My activism has always been very radical, creative, and singular. Mm-hmm. My earliest memory, it's really hard because what is creativity? I mean, I was a kid. I played outside. I'm sure I took stuff in the dirt, etc. <laughs> on the walls. And then when I started playing the piano, because mm. most of my previous life, actually, it is a life in a sense, was as a concert pianist. I was yes. starting to become a pianist. So that was just playing around on the keys. You studied in Paris as well. I did. I graduated from the High School of Music and Art, and I was very clear that I didn't need to go to college because why would a great pianist need to go to college? But I needed to go to Paris because Mm. Paris was romantic, and you study in Paris, and it was romantic, and I studied, and I practically starved because I didn't have very much money at all. But I like to say that Paris taught me how to love bread and cheese because (laughs) I never had enough money to eat. Mm. I wrote a piece about my thought that every action for justice or radical action starts with that child. No, I won't. It's not fair. There's something that, that comes up that is that wonderful primal feeling of this is not right. This Mm. is fair. And it happened when I had the clinic, I founded Choices, which was one of the first abortion clinics in the country, two years before Roe, because abortion was legal in New York. And And abortion is still legal in New York. It is. Mm -hmm. And in 1976, there was a Republican congressman called Henry Hyde. Mm. And Henry Hyde said he wanted to save all the babies and ban all abortions, but He's just going to save the babies of the poor. So what did that mean? He was Mm. going to cut off Medicaid funding for poor women and Mm. poor minority women, black women, the usual targets. And these were my patients. These were the patients and the women that I was seeing every day that were struggling to survive, that made a decision for abortion, mainly for economic reasons. And here, boom, cuts off Medicaid. And I remember I went up to my desk and I sat down and I wrote this one-page polemic. This is wrong. This is women's rights. How can this happen? And must have made about two or 300 of these things. And I walked up to Queens College, which was my alma mater and very close to the clinic. 
And I just started handing them out and started talking to the students. And I said, do you realize that women's rights are going to be in a state of emergency? They've cut off Medicaid funding for poor people and minority women. And the attitude was that the shoulders were shrugged and it was, I'll always be able to get an abortion. I can travel. I'll have the resources. And these were white middle-class kids. And this was the time that was my first, totally alone. It was my first action and it showed me so powerfully the race-class divide in the Mm -hmm. country. Because Mm -hmm. that's when we should have been marching and screaming, you see? That's when everybody should have been coming out in the streets because when you go after one part, one woman, you go after all of us. And that did not happen. And throughout all of the years with the redefinition as reproductive justice and Loretta Ross, whom I've worked with and Sister Song, there's been a lot of discussion about that. Yeah, that was my first political action. In your memoir, you recall an experience where you heard your parents... Yeah. Talking about something when you were 10. Do you want to tell that story? Well, abortion was something that was never discussed or anything. But the first time I heard about it was when I was about that age. And my parents were talking in another room. And later I learned that in Philadelphia, I grew up there and uh, till 10 or whatever. What had happened is that a woman had an illegal abortion and it was botched and she died. And in order to cover it up, the physician cut her into multiple pieces and put those pieces down the drain. That was my first exposure to abortion. Mm. That's the only time I heard the word. And that's what it was embedded in. How do we make the journey from concert pianist to opening the first clinic offering abortions to women pre-Roe in Flushing in 1971. How do we make the journey from that? Well, the journey is made externally and internally. Let me start with my internal journey. As I was studying to be a concert pianist. I was also reading a lot. I was writing, adolescence writing poetry, of course, love poetry, love and death. And I thought I may be a writer or just didn't know where I fit into any of the prototypical roles that were around me. And you do remember that I grew up, I'm 76 years old now, and I grew in the 50s, and I remember wearing a crinoline skirt. You sat right. down and the thing flipped up in your face. Because right. it, and the only thing you could, you could be a nurse or a teacher with something to fall back on because mm-hmm. if you get you were going to get married. It's a fall back. Yeah. But I would even say, even, the, even saying I'm going to be a concert pianist at that moment is also pretty radical. Not in my family, because okay. my family, my mother's side had musicians, radicals who tried to bomb the Zog, has a whole long, <laughs> a lot of, had a lot of musicians. And Great. Actually, so music was in my family. My, yeah. I had two cousins who were concert artists. The talent was there, but I wanted to be, of course, a great pianist, but mm. there were not very many, very few, in fact. And so there were no role models, but I knew and I felt that I had to do something important, that the life I was living in Queens, somehow I was put in an alien environment. I think a lot of people feel that in a sense, but for me, it was very powerful. So as I said, I went to Paris and I studied and starved 
and came home and was just reading and reading. And my mother said, okay, you're not laying on the couch reading Dostoevsky for the next 25 years. Get a job. So I... <laughs> <laughs> so I got up finally and I went out and I got a two or three part-time jobs and one was with a physician. I was a medical assistant in the office and this physician had uh, had worked in Bellevue Hospital as a resident and he talked about the Midnight Express. And that's the psychiatric hospital, is that right? It had both. It, it had, had both. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what would happen is that women would come bleeding because they had uh. used these household objects to try and terminate their pregnancies because it was illegal and they were bleeding maybe in sepsis and they would come in late and the residents or the young docs would clean them out to a DNC. So that it developed in him a very strong feeling for the need for legal abortion and one of the positions was working with him and he had said that he wanted to open a small service for women because now abortion was illegal in New York, okay? Now, didn't think about abortion, didn't think about feminism, never read any feminist literature. It was always philosophy, criminology, nothing. And he said, you want to help? And I said, I do. What happened is the first patient came to this small service in Flushing from New Jersey. And she came from New Jersey because it was illegal in New Jersey, okay? before 73. She was married, she was white, she was Catholic, and she had three children and she was in terrible financial stress. She could not have another child. And I remember him saying to me, okay, counsel, talk to her, (laughs) 25 years old, what do I say? I knew about the procedure and I thought about all my coursework, Yeah, but my reading, it didn't help. But I just sat there and I spoke to her, it was one woman, with another when I told her about the procedure. And then I held her hand and there was no general anesthesia at that point. Oh gosh, wow. So it was under local and we give uh, lidocaine, but whatever, it's still, it was still like very bad. Yeah. And yeah. I held her hand and I breathed with her and I had what I would describe as a kind of epiphany. And that's the only way I could call it. I saw at that moment, the profound, powerful nature of that choice, of the choice of deciding whether or not to continue and let this life continue to grow, you see, Mm. or not. Right. So I saw it as a decision and an action of great power, yet also one of enormous vulnerability. And because I had the ability to move in and out of different realities with these women, you have to be there. You have to engage deeply with this. And I did, and that started it. And I always say that my politics came from the ground up. It was not theoretical. It was not because I read in theory is that women's liberation has to have abortion and feminism is the theory and abortion is the practice. It was a practice of each individual woman making this profound decision about what's going to happen at this point in time. There's a couple things that are coming up for me. First of all, I have an adopted son. And so when I adopted him, I was surprised to find that it was women who already had many children who made that choice. Mm -hmm. And so in either story, though, what is not important and what you are bringing to the forefront of importance is the woman's choice 
because we worry so much about the outcome of the child in either case. Where is the baby going or what life are we ending as opposed to who she already is and cares for? And I think there's a disconnect between the profound caring that her choice is actually making when she's making that choice. The profound caring already embedded in it. What you need to do is we need to do this procedure, but the history, the story that brings us to the moment of that decision and who she is. That's because women do not matter. Ultimately, abortion is about women and women's lives. That's what it's about. And you have to separate out the chooser. I wrote a piece about sex selection abortion, that you separate out the chooser from the choice. And there are many times I heard stories about reasons and I'd say, I don't know whether I would make that choice or the other one, but yet that's not- It's not your choice, right. I disagree with whatever, whatever it is, but it's hers. And the question is, who is to make that choice? Will it be the state? Will it be the religious bodies? Or will it be the woman in whose body this is growing? Now, I have an adopted daughter. Mm. And I adopted her when I was 58 years old. And I had an abortion when I was 32. I was married and I had all the supports I needed to have that child. And people would look at that and say, well, you have the support, you have the finances, you have a husband, you have this, that. But I just didn't want to have a child at that point in time. And that was a good enough reason for me. And no one can judge that. But what is a mother and what is parenting? That's a whole other thing. Yeah, and it's complicated because I, in my own evolution, and I will say ignorance too, I was raised Catholic and educated around the life and the, 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 and even as late as 30, I was, oh, I don't know, not understanding how really disconnected, quite frankly, from my own choice from the power of my own choice and you my are. own oh yeah and my own ability to make decisions for myself so right. it's just in this moment that i'm realizing that's what it was i didn't have a sense of my own value at a high enough level to even consider why that would be of importance more importance than the life conceived from this vantage point yeah. it's or if it is a life at that point that's a question too but it's an acorn and oak i mean it's it's, it's that's a bigger question but the, right. but from this vantage point this and women not mattering this i call it a visibility not this value this lack of value that is actually it's a burden many of us carry that has quite frankly nothing to do with us we are inherently valuable by, by virtue of our existence. Culture of patriarchy that steeps us in our lack of value. It's what I call outposts. The enemy has outposts in our head. Yes. You're a bad girl. You're a slut. You're a whore. You're sinning. Right. You're stupid. Yeah. You didn't use the right but that, that, that tape keeps rolling and rolling. And the antis have been extremely effective in setting that narrative. You can be whatever in the world, but yet in your heart and soul, you still have some of those outposts. And the work of most women is going to have to be dismantling those outposts. That's right. We brought up the Hyde Amendment a little bit and the idea that he's saying Medicaid should not finance 
abortion, which is interesting right. because it strikes me that abortion would be cheaper than financing pregnancy. But aside from that, <laughs> logic and in, in, in reason you know? no no logic then we say okay you can have this procedure done around when was it around the 90s that it came in you can have this procedure done if you uh, it's rape or incest but 13 states say no that's not true and this thing still is on the books and i guess it's kind of moot at this point because we're no, it's uh, not because the Hyde amendment is voted on every single year but even though abortion is now going to be effectively illegal except to new york relevant in the states every state except i think four or five do not pay for medicaid fortunately new york is one of the states that do okay right. in terms of federal legislation and this was with clinton and it was with obama they all voted and put that on the budget reconciliation every year of the hyde amendment all right if you want to kill your baby i'm not paying for it and that comes under that rubric right we keep fighting against and the energy required for that it, there's a shift in when we when i'm looking at transformation there's a shift in just simply stating I will not fight because I can do what I choose to do by virtue of my existence. And now, again, we have laws that tell us what we can and can't do. And then there's the back alley stuff and all that. But there is something about collectively deciding why are we even engaging with someone who tells us what we can and can't do about our bodies when they are simply ours. It's like a Buckminster Fuller. Like there's a higher moral authority. And that's right. I'm not talking about God per se or anything like that. But there's, again, that feeling of no this far and no further. The power of the state has to stop at my skin. How dare you? That's right. I must deliver this child. Right. Ten years old, I'm going to have my whole body wrecked delivering a child. How dare you? How dare you? And what we were not looking at, because the abortion is an effect right. of a seed of violence and accepted violence that is perpetrated against women. The law, this law is violence against women, but set of violent acts that gave a 10-year-old a child in the first place. But again, I think there is something about why are we fighting against things that have nothing, like, nothing to do in a way with the truth of who we are. And I get why we have to. I'm not saying, oh, we don't have to fight. The, I'm not, I'm, but I'm saying that there is some fundamental shift among women that must occur whereby we understand simply that we will not be ruled. And why would you even try that? People become ungovernable. You exactly. See, you see, you can't, how can you even think about passing these laws? That's why I call and my co-initiators with Rise Up for Abortion Rights call the court illegitimate and the it decision illegitimate. How dare you pick up this guy from the 17th century and quote him and witch trials and what is this about? When we're supposed to be a democratic republic and we are now moving very strongly into a theocratic fundamentalist society. I call it the American Taliban. I don't mm. think ISIS could learn from this. And you know something? I was not surprised when this law came down because we were out there in January. We felt, we knew. But what really takes my breath away and is heartbreaking is the cruelty of it, the cruelty of the effect of these laws on women. Uh, this is what not only breaks my heart, but puts so much rage into me 
so much righteous anger that this will not stand. This cannot stand. And in my mind, every, you know how many millions of women have had abortions since legalization, since 1970s, and millions, and their families, and their loved ones, and their friends. What a constituency. Why aren't they out there? You know, why? Because of the outposts in their heads. A lot of them want to be good girls, and they just don't want to come out and say, yes, we have celebrities now because it's cool to say I had an abortion. We're not being cool. We have to make sure everybody can have a legal, safe abortion. So I want to talk about visibility because that is what this is. Why aren't all of the women who've had the abortions out there, one in three women will have an abortion in her lifetime. In her lifetime. Right? Six out of every 10 women who have had abortions are already mothers. Mothers. Because again, we forget that a DNC is an abortion, just quite simply. But as you've written about as well, people who are involved in the movement, doctors who are involved in the movement have faced threats against their lives, have been harmed. And if a woman has been raped and that's why she's had an abortion, that fear is profound and rightly so within. So how do we become visible when our rights are being attacked by our highest court, alleged the people who are supposed to protect us. And then we do face, I need only post something unpopular to get a death threat, like about the choice of peanut butter you use, you can get a death threat. So people are, there are some people are just, they're unhinged. So how do you invite women to be visible in the face of that? Is it because there's so many of us? What is it? I'll tell you, you have to practice courage. Okay. Courage is one of the cardinal virtues. When I'm talking about courage, it's really important that women particularly have the courage to be able to say, no, I don't want to. And it's not only in sex. I don't have to dress like that, that the opposition that you have as a kid, where I'll go back to that. I don't want to. You're not the boss of me. I think we have a whole movement that's called, you are not the boss of me. Sign me up for that. I am part of, I'm right there. You are not the boss of me. I totally, I'm right there. You are not the boss. No. <laughs> and courage doesn't come naturally. And there's different kinds of courage. There's psychological courage. There's physical courage. And that is something that I think because I've always, when I was younger, had these warrior fantasies of being mm. a leader and leading troops into battle and Joan of Arc or Elizabeth. <laughs> Those were my role models. So I have a very big rescue fantasy mm-hmm. for me. It was a natural extension, okay? I went out, I did that pamphlet, and I went to Queens College. Then I debated everyone, and then I've been all over, and a friend of mine was shot in the head, George Tiller, Dr. Tiller in Kansas. I've had friends who've been murdered. I've had death threats. I have protesters outside. I face battle after battle, and each one, I'm not going to, you don't get anxious, or you don't get afraid. You have to lean. If you want to say lean into it, you have to go through it, because fear is how people are ruled, okay? And another very important thing is not only do you have to practice courage, 
Other people have to show it to you. When we started with Rise Up, we went to the Supreme Court on January 22nd, which is the Roe anniversary, and we started to say, raise the alarm. This is coming down in June. Why isn't everybody in the street? Maybe there were 10 people. Then we went to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and I put up my big hanger again mm-hmm. in February. Maybe there were 50 to 100 people. And then it grew, and it grew. You just go on websites, and you see what women are doing now under Rise Up. The creative and, I think, extraordinarily powerful actions that are getting them arrested, that are coming out and saying, this is what an illegal abortion does. Now, there are a lot of people in the movement that have a big problem with this. Do you know how many arguments I've had to have with people saying the hanger is not appropriate? It's not appropriate. And why are women out there with fake blood on them? Why? You haven't seen somebody die of sepsis. You have no idea about the reality of what happens with illegal abortion. They'd like to keep it theoretical. Let's argue about it. Let's debate about it. There is no debate. When abortion is not legal, women die because they'll always have them. They'll find a way to do it. Some of us have harder work to do in the world and we're wired to do it. There's something about growing self too. There's some people for whom if you do not allow yourself to grow along the hard edges, along the harder path that you are able to walk, you will not feel the aliveness that you need to. You'll never feel that. This is why I'm an armchair alpinist. And I read all about these people who climb Everest. <laughs> and I say, oh, I can never, I can. But then I think, but we each have our own Everests. And I have my own, which is the issues and the things that I do. We all have our wounds and we, we have them. Do you continually call attention to it and say, I can't do this because my wound is bleeding? Or do you try and put scar tissue over it and say, I'm special, they're a wonderful poem in the cracked places? You know, something that's perfect, <laughs> that doesn't go through being yeah. challenged. Yeah. <laughs> we'll never have those cracked places. And that's where the wisdom comes in. But you have to choose to be chosen. That's another thing. You have to choose. Okay. And then you're chosen. What do you mean you have to choose to be chosen? If they're doing something in the world, if they're making a change or if they've come out politically or whatever, that there's some kind of a force in the world that chooses them. They're special or like mm-hmm. divine gifts. But everyone has a gift. And a lot of this, and as a musician, I know, and everybody around me always said that genius is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. So you choose that. You can choose that feeling of being chosen. I certainly did. I chose to think of myself in those, on those very big stages. And all of us can make that choice. And that's back to the value. You choose to see your value in that conversation. You assumed you had value in that conversation by virtue of existence. I assumed I had value that nobody was recognizing. That's why nobody saw it. And what's so interesting, I've done this work. Yes, a lot of it had been recognized or whatever, but I'll do it until I die. And all of a sudden, after this law was passed, people are saying, wow, Hoffman's been doing that for 51 years, but it's not noticed for a law. But that's okay. I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it because I'm choosing to do that work. So you have to be internally reinforced 
And that was the same with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, though, uh-huh. flying under the radar, just doing her thing, right? Don't, just you do what you do it, and don't look for adulation, and don't look for external reinforcement. You look to yourself because right. you're doing what you should be doing, and it's a right and good thing. That's, but that's very hard. It's hard in this society. It's not easy to be good in this world. It and is, but it is easy to be yourself, I think. It's, if you grow yourself, you have to, if you get a self. Yeah. Get a self. <laughs> like instead of get a life, it should be get a self. <laughs> that's, that's a, there's a hashtag. We coined it right here, folks. Get a self. Yeah. Where and when, and I do believe we need to bring men, young uh, men, actively into this conversation. And so what is the age at which we should speak about abortion and how do we speak about it so that it's less about the act? Because what I love about choices is how much you speak about reproductive health and freedom. There's a range of things involved in that. And so that's what is... I think, important to the conversation. So how do we begin a conversation and at what age do we begin the conversation? The age that the question is asked. When the question is asked, there's a formulation in the mind of the child. Let's take my daughter. She knows what her mother does and all of this. And there was a time she says, you know, I don't think it's right to kill a baby. All right. And I let her speak, and, and then she'll talk to me, and I said, what happened if you get pregnant? I don't know. I'm young. And as she evolves her own questions and is able to think about them in ways that make sense to her, I give her enough information. I'm not, you don't upload a lot of technical or political information, but it's as they can understand it. And uh, I sometimes use the uh, the garden uh, analogy because I have gardens and uh, I show her and say, you see these flowers, they're all in a family and how they bloom. And this is one thing here is not, it's not a flower. It, it's a, this has to go or in order for these to grow. So there are other analogies, but the person who is teaching or the parent has to be comfortable with these realities. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, people are not. And I had a lot of discussion in the beginning with the pro-choice movement where they would just constantly say, oh, it's just blood and tissue. What is just, it isn't just blood and tissue. It is, but it isn't because it has potential to be something else, okay? <laughs> so it, there's a difference. And you have to respect that. You have to understand that. And that's why the choice is so powerful. If it was just like the choice of getting a breast reduction, there wouldn't be anything like this going on. Even the fact that it is a political conversation when it is profoundly an internal choice. And what's interesting, too, is you talk about the inner and outer journey of becoming an activist and where you are. We came so far and then we're back at the beginning again. Do you feel the costs are worth it? And then how do you balance space to receive your own joy, your own ease, your own, is there room for that? And I, cause I think that does make some women afraid of becoming quote unquote, a voice. Okay. My life is my work. My life is my voice. My life is my activism. I think I remember coming back from a big rally I did for the 22nd in Bryant Park behind the the library. 
and uh, there was a very big crowd and I made a very passionate speech and I felt I was living my destiny. I felt I was where I should be, doing what I should be. And that, you see, was the most joy. When we do rallies and when you get the crowd going and you're doing your thing and everybody, you feel that justice and that righteous rage. And when we came off, I said, better than sex, right? You can't imagine that. And when we see these young kids, 14, 15, there's a 12 year old that was just on TV that was giving testimony about abortion and messages. When you see these young kids coming out and just for the first time taking a microphone and raising their voice and talking about injustice, that gives me the most pleasure and joy that I could imagine. But that's me, okay? And maybe more Americans do than probably other cultures, but they believe that happiness is a goal. And right. happiness is just an ephemeral emotion, like said. Right. You have to become who you, who you are, and that's hard because there's a lot of pressures out there telling you who you should be. And then when you watch these screens all the time, they're showing you who you should be. I think it's much harder to grow a self at this point in time than it was than when I was growing up. I didn't have all these toxic images coming. TikTok, you only need to get on TikTok for five minutes and everybody's Woo! doing the dance to the dance yeah. to the thing. thing. You get this stuff. You're fighting a culture that is materialist, that is shallow, that does not rise up the role models that young people really need, mm. that show them what a life of work, service, integrity, courage, virtue, all those things that may sound conservative. And I suppose in that sense, I am. But that's what I believe. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just another shopper. Yeah, I feel the same. We talk a lot about leadership on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Do you think women lead differently? And if yes, would you call it feminine leadership? I really don't use the word feminine because mm -hmm. it's loaded with all of the roles and etc. Mm -hmm. Corporate leadership, yes, I think women will be more collaborative, want to bring everybody into it. They've had studies that have shown that this is true. I think that there's still a nod to a structure that they believe is correct. If I'm really a good girl and I do think everything is going to be okay because I'm a very good girl, yeah. but good girls don't change the world, bad right. girls. They just don't. Right. My type of leadership, which I always tease about, is a collective autocracy. I have everybody around me. I let everybody speak. We argue. We debate. But then I make my decision because it's my clinic. It's my head that's going to be on the block. And it's my responsibility. I think women have real problems with power, with the right. use of it and with how they should use it. How do you define power? The ability to influence events and oneself and drive energies in the directions that you see. And it's dynamic. Right. I don't see power as static. Kings and queens have been overthrown and they were divine monarchs because the group decided, I don't think God put you on that throne, so we're going to cut your head off. So right. there has to be a dynamic between those who are in power and the people that they're in power over. That dynamic is constantly shifting. 
And you have to learn that. You have to know people, you have to listen, you have to respect, and then you have to have the courage, again, to make decisions, to make them and then move on. And I see a lot of women who really struggle with a decision and then, oh, what will happen if I do this? And then, well, this, yeah. And collecting opinions about their the decisions that are only for them, <laughs> that they could only have the knowledge of, but are simply Every single friend, what do you every think? Every friend. This? Oh, what do you think of that? Well, I'm a stoic philosophically. You can only control one thing. Most of the world and everything happens to you is things you cannot control. So you make the best decision that you can, you put it out there, and that's it. Just make sure that you're able to deal with the fallout if it's the wrong decision. Right. Isn't that part of being a good leader? You're, is... a, if you're a war leader like I am. I'm like, I'm in a war. I consider myself like a war constantly. Here's a good exercise for people. Take your decision, take it out all the way to the worst thing that can happen because you made that decision, the very worst thing, and say, how would I deal with it if that happened to me? Then go through it. And if you find, you say, well, I could manage. I'll manage it one way or another make the decision. That is exactly the way we do it. I say, what's the worst thing that could happen? Right. And what's the worst thing that could happen now? And we do right. this ad nausea until we get to the end. And half the time you realize that you are equipped to handle the worst thing. It's actually not as worst as you Bad thought. as you think it could That's be. That's right. Like it, it could be infinitely worse. I would just ask everyone who's listening or watching or whatever to look in the mirror and ask yeah. what is the thing I can do? Is it to speak to my friend that I've never told I had an abortion or to come out. You just make the first step, which is always the hardest, but the smallest too. That's what I would say. I do love that. And I think just, again, the statistics tell all. There are people who are just, will keep their secrets until they their deathbed and that won't serve us. It's a community, isn't it? You have to yeah. have radical empathy and compassion. I think that's what is important for this conversation right now. My goal is every other woman, not the 1%, not the 2%, but every other woman, because that's where the profound change could, if one, if the one in three stood up and stood right. together, we wouldn't right. be having this conversation. What a constituency. What a constituency. Exactly. Girl can dream. What am I? So we have to remember that if the one in three stood up and just simply said, this impact. That's right. No more. We would be I having made that choice. And I, I made that choice I, and we, we would have no conversation anymore. That's right. We ask everybody to complete the question. My wish for every other woman is. I wish for every other woman that they can make that internal journey and separate out what is them to grow themselves in a space where they'll have the ability to critically think about issues and really come to understand that specialness that makes them the individual that they are and then authentically express that. That's what I wish. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead.
Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com. <laughs>